Let's, as we get started, remember the glory of 13 seconds, one January night. Uh, When the Buffalo Bills kicked off to the Chiefs after having scored a touchdown to put them up by three, there were just 13 seconds left on the clock. And the logarithm said the Chiefs had a 5.65% chance of winning that game. They completed their first pass, as you will remember. The odds jumped all the way up to a robust 9% chance of winning that game. And then, of course, we all know what happened. Kelsey and Mahomes used their telepathy with one another to get in field goal range. Harrison Butker kicked a field goal to tie it up at the end of regulation, and the Chiefs won it in overtime. And against all odds, the Kansas City Chiefs won that game. Now, we will not talk about what happened the next week. Let's just focus on the goodness of that moment. And against all odds, they won the game. Now, we love stories of victory against unspeakable odds, mainly because when the time comes, and the time will come for all of us when the stakes are high, we can use those storage to leverage those reserves of hope that remain stubbornly embedded in the human heart. And then there are times times that come for all of us when those reserves that we can always count on are completely depleted and there's no hope to be found and in those moments we feel like the odds are not only against us we feel like the odds are completely non-existent and perhaps the most devastating bout of hopelessness that a follower of Jesus can experience is when someone that they love makes it very clear that not only do they not believe about Jesus the way that you believe about Jesus, they don't want you to ever bring up the subject of Jesus with them again. And because of what we believe about the absolute necessity of salvation through faith in Christ alone, and because of what we believe about the consequences of final rejection of faith in Jesus, we are gripped with what can accurately be described as a kind of panicked hopelessness concerning the eternal destiny of people that we love. With those things in mind, if you would please find Romans chapter 11 in your copy of God's Word. If you've been coming uh, to Blue Valley uh, the past several months, you know we're in a year-long study of the book of Romans, and for the past few weeks, we have seen Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, explaining in Romans 9 and Romans 10 why the people of Israel have rejected the Jewish Messiah and why the Gentiles, non-Jews, have embraced the Jewish Messiah. Now, for us, that is just a, a theological curiosity. We've got no real investment in that debate, at least until we remember that we're Gentiles. But even then, it's not like it was for the Jewish Christians who were in Paul's audience, who were hearing the letter to their church in Rome read to them. For them, the things that Paul was touching on touched on everything that they had been taught to believe since childhood and was leading them to ask the question, has God failed to keep his promises 
to his chosen people. And it touched on their fears for their Jewish family and friends who hadn't embraced Jesus the way that they had embraced Jesus. And so they were filled with fear, with a real gripping fear for those they loved who hadn't followed him. And it has been made worse by the fact that in Romans 9 and 10, Paul is taught that the Jewish rejection of Jesus as Messiah was a part of God's plan for things. It seemed as though God had, in instituting this plan, taken away all hope that their family and their friends could ever find Jesus. They did not believe in hearing Paul's words in Romans 9 and 10 that the odds were against their family and friends finding Jesus. It was easy for them to conclude that the odds were non-existent that their family and friends would find Jesus. So Paul addresses those fears like a good pastor in Romans 11, and he tells them, and he tells those of us who fear for family and friends who are not following Jesus, that the odds are never as bleak as they seem. Let's see how he does that. Look at Romans 11, verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's speaking of Israel. Has God rejected his people? And he answers, by no means. He does this routinely in the book of Romans. He asks a question, and then he very strongly says, absolutely not. Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He asked the question, has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer is, well, hey, I'm a Jew. I grew up in the Jewish religion. I come from the Jewish background. And by implication, he's saying, well, many of you are, are Jews. You grew up in the Jewish religion. You, you, you come from a Jewish background and you found Jesus. I found Jesus. And so very clearly, apparently, apparently God has not rejected the Jewish people. Now, it's easy for us in this very sarcastic age to kind of read Paul as being smug and silly here, but he's not. He's actually making a very valid point. The mere fact, he is saying, that there are Jewish Christians proves that God has not rejected Israel. So speaking to the personal fear, remember that's what's driving this this new section, Romans 11, speaking to the personal fear that his readers were feeling for their loved ones, he's saying, don't think that just because God has ordained the rejection of the Jewish nation of Jesus as the Messiah means that there's no hope for a Jewish person to be saved. The mere fact that there were Jews who were following Jesus proved that God was busy saving those who had a Jewish background and meant that he had not rejected his people. And, and to his readers, Paul says the fact is there have always been unbelieving Jews within the nation of Israel. The nation itself has always pretty much been known for the rejection of God. If you have even a passing acquaintance with the Old Testament, you, you understand that the nation of Israel was Jerry Springer show level crazy, constantly running away from God. There were always unbelieving Jews who scoffed at the laws and the rituals of the Jewish religion and who mocked Israel's God. 
And in those times, the numbers of those of who were actually being faithful to God were so small in Israel that they wondered, has God given up on Israel? So it's not a new question that Jewish people have been asking. Has God failed to keep his promises? And, and one of those who felt that way was a man named Elijah, who would be on the Mount Rushmore of the Jewish religion if there were such a thing. Elijah was a prophet of God who boldly proclaimed faithfulness to God in the face of white-hot opposition to him and his message from the Jewish people to the point that the queen of Israel at the time, Queen Jezebel, put a hit out on him, forcing him to, to run for his life, finding him eventually hiding in a cave, alone and scared and alone. And by alone... I mean that he thought he was the only one left in Israel who was being faithful to God, and I'm about to die. And so the question, has God rejected his people? Has God failed to keep his promises? This is what Elijah is asking in the episode that, that Paul refers to beginning in the last part of verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. And Elijah says this, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, I alone am left and they seek my life. There's one of us left and I'm about to die, this isn't looking good for you keeping your promises. But what does God's reply to him? God's reply to him was, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to the false god of Baal. As bleak as it was, God told Elijah that he had been faithful to the people of Israel, that he had reserved and preserved a faithful remnant of others in the nation who were just like Elijah. Israel would have completely walked away from God on their own, but, but Paul is saying here that the Old Testament bears out that God kept, and that's the word, kept, a faithful few from stumbling, demonstrating his ongoing commitment to Israel as his chosen people in showing the glory of his grace. You see, it was all about grace. And having raised that subject, Paul wants to make sure that his readers and, and us today understand what a big deal grace is when it comes to knowing Jesus. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace by which we are preserved as Jewish people, at this point that's what he's speaking to, the Jewish Christians, if it is by grace that we are preserved, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. In other words, he's saying all of us would have rejected God if it weren't for God. God had done all of the work in preserving a faithful few, or Israel would have walked away from God in mass long ago. In fact, from the very beginning. Next summer, we're going to, late spring and through the summer, we're going to walk through the book of Exodus, to which everybody went, yay, seriously. I know you're excited about it. It will be. It'll be good. You'll enjoy it. But here's what we're going to find out next summer. We're going to find out that they get the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel. You've seen the movie. You know what it's like. And right after they get them, they build an idol and have a party. Walked away from God from the beginning. And Paul's just speaking to his Jewish Christians 
And he's saying, I'm just reminding you of what you already know. The only fact that there are, are faithful Jews in any generation is because God has done the work in preserving them, keeping them to himself. And by extension, he's saying to the Jewish Christians to whom he's writing, that's why you're here. You're not here because you've earned it, deserved it, worked your way towards it. You're here because God, by his grace, is keeping you from stumbling and is bringing you to Jesus, which leads him to kind of reframe the question, verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. What then is simply Paul's way of reiterating, reframing the question he'd asked back in verse 1, has God rejected Israel? In light of Israel's failure to historically remain faithful to God, and in light of the episode that he had just touched on from Elijah's life. And his answer is, once again, God has not rejected Israel, but now he's going to lean into something that we must not forget. Remember, if you were here last week, we talked about how there is this tension that Paul never tries to resolve between God's sovereign elective choice preserving by his own will and decision a faithful few, but there's also a free will for which we are fully responsible, and he never tries to resolve any of that. And so what he's saying here is that it's all been by grace. We've all been kept in this way. God has not rejected Israel. Israel has rejected God. He's bringing in that personal responsibility as a nation. Israel had over and over again succumbed to the human tendency to undervalue the wickedness of our sin and to overvalue our efforts at moral goodness. Israel was saying to God over and over again, yeah, we'll follow you on our terms. I mean, we'll do all the temple stuff, we'll observe the feast, but we're going to have a little side hustle with the gods of Canaan. You're going to have to be okay with that. That's what you have to accept from us. God, meet us on our moral terms. And God's response is that he gave them over to their delusions of self-righteous grandeur, and he hardened them. But just as he had by grace saved some in Elijah's day, God had saved some in Paul's day by grace reserving some of those from the nation who had rejected Jesus as Messiah for himself who would follow Jesus as Messiah. And again, to underline the fact that it's always been this way, he quotes from the Old Testament in the last few verses of our passage. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a, a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So what's he saying? He's saying hardening most in Israel while reserving a faithful few has always been God's pattern with the people of Israel. Things were no different in Paul's time when God finally sent Jesus to the Jewish people. But we must remember that the purpose of this rejection, the part of the plan that God was instituting, it was not because he was punishing Israel or being vindictive with Israel. He was doing it because it was all a part of, of a way of taking the gospel to the whole world. If the original Christians, 
all of whom were from a Jewish background, had shared the gospel with their Jewish family and friends, and all of their Jewish family and friends, or most of their Jewish family and friends, had responded to the gospel of Jesus, they would have succumbed to the prevailing notion of the time that the Messiah was just for the Jewish people, and he was going to kill everybody else. And they would have never thought to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But because they were almost completely being rejected by their Jewish counterparts, they decided to test the message with Gentiles. And Gentiles were coming over and over to Jesus, which was how God had intended for thousands of years to fulfill his promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. So Paul has explained here that God has not rejected his people, but is continuing to show his favor to them in graciously choosing a remnant from among them who would follow Jesus. He did not then want his readers to conclude in the face of the antipathy of the Jewish family and friends with whom they were sharing that there was no hope for them. The fact that many of his readers were Jewish people who followed Jesus proved that God was still in the business of redeeming some from among the Jews by his grace, which, taking us back to our thoughts about our family and friends who seem to have rejected Jesus for the final time, means that we need to lay hold of of what Paul is illustrating for us in the first 10 verses of Romans 11. He's illustrating for us that God graciously chooses to save people still today against every odd in the book. God still graciously chooses to save people. As I look back on a lifetime in vocational ministry, my mind fills with the faces of people who were complete lost causes. Folks who I deemed so far gone from God that there was a better chance the sun would fall out of the sky than that they would ever come to know Jesus as Savior. And at the top of that list was a guy named Oscar Newton. Oscar's identity in Leoma, Tennessee was rooted in his hostility to Jesus. That was the first community that I pastored. When I was 29 years old, I went to be the pastor of Leoma Baptist Church in Leoma, Tennessee, not even a town. You go through it at about 50, 55 miles an hour. There's a little sign that says Leoma Unincorporated, Charlie's Chicken, Purcell's Radiator, Bank, School, that's it. I mean, 30 seconds, if you blink, you miss it. But in that kind of rural southern community, everybody loves Jesus. I mean, everybody just loves Jesus. If you don't believe that everybody loves Jesus, watch the CMAs. You know, that's the world. Everybody loves Jesus. So to cultivate an identity of being openly hostile to faith required great effort, and it was effort that Oscar relished. I first heard about Oscar in my last few days as youth minister of First Baptist Church of Shelbyville, Tennessee, properly pronounced Shelbyville, Tennessee. Oscar's brother Bob was a member and a deacon of First Baptist Church, and when he heard that I was going to be the new pastor of the Baptist Church that was just a stone's throw away from where Oscar lived, he asked me if I would travel with him one Saturday to Leoma to share faith with his brother Oscar. Now here's what you've got to know. You've got to know that 
that, that Bob had worn himself out sharing his faith with his brother. And had always been rebuffed quickly, decisively, but he never gave up. And as far as he was concerned, finding out that the youth minister at his church was about to be the pastor of the church in the community where his brother lived was just enough to keep the coals of hope that he had for his brother coming to Christ alive. And so we went to see Oscar. Now, Oscar's health at this point was failing very fast, but his hostility to faith was still healthy and it burned hot that Saturday morning when Bob and I visited him in his home. And I will never forget, it is one of the most um, unbelievable scenes of passion for someone's faith that I've ever witnessed. I'll never forget Bob kneeling on the floor beside his, his brother Oscar's wheelchair, begging him, begging him to come to faith in Jesus. And I'll never forget seeing a, a tear roll down Oscar's face while at the same time stiffening his body against what his brother was asking him to do. Surveying that scene in my studied, wildly 29-year-old experienced life, I thought, there's no, that guy's not coming to Jesus. I've just wasted a Saturday. He's not coming to Jesus. But I was wrong. I promised Bob I'd still check in on Oscar, and I did. Long story short, one Saturday morning, I went in, and essentially my plea to, to Oscar was, come on, Oscar, seriously, how long are you going to do this? And to my complete shock, Oscar gave his life to Jesus, and he was the first person I baptized as a pastor. The odds were against Oscar. But God was still at work. So for everyone out there who thinks that God has passed a loved one by, like the people to whom Paul is writing, thinking that the love of God had passed their family and friends by, let me encourage you with two thoughts rooted in this passage. Number one, against all odds, people still believe, even lost causes. And here's the deal. Everybody I'm looking at, is a former lost cause. I am a former lost God. Against all odds, any of us who are saved have been saved. Sin has not made us deficient in the things of God. It has made us dead to the things of God. One of the things that uh, I will be roundly criticized by our staff about until the day I die is the fact that I miraculously scheduled my sabbatical to start last fall when we got to the part of Romans 1, 2, and 3 where Paul just over and over again says, you're sinners, we're all sinners. I gave that to Jonathan and I left. <laughs> but he concludes his argument, Paul does, about the desperate situation in which we find ourselves with these stunning words in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good. No, not one. You are not unhealthy spiritually. You're dead spiritually. You're a lost cause because of your sin. He goes on to say, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's you. And that's me. Before we were made alive in God through Christ Jesus. Before God, through His mercy and grace, showed us the way to Jesus and kept us for Himself. There is no more accurate description of the human condition than the bleak one that Paul gives in Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're dead in our sins. The odds of us coming alive spiritually on our own are nil, and yet here we are. On a Sunday morning, Gentiles, 2,000 years later, and we believe, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us, for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. You and I believe that because of what God has done. Against every odd in the book, You and I still believe, and even your Oscar Newton may still yet believe because against all odds, God still saves. Yes, I know how hard it is to hear the language of God hardening hearts. There's a mystery to it that at various points in our lives will try the faith of all of us, but... There's two things here that we need to pay attention to. Go back to verse 8 of Romans 11. Paul writes, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And we lock in on the idea that God gave. But it was our eyes that would not see and our ears that would not hear. So, in spite of God's elective choice, we still have a will for which we are responsible. That's the first thing to remember about about God's activity in saving. The second thing is this. We don't know perfectly the mind of God. And so we cannot know who He will save. And in light of that, you need to live your life with the understanding that everybody with whom you lock eyes, 
who doesn't know Jesus is a candidate to be saved. You don't know that God will not save them. In fact, here's the assumption that I make. I make the assumption that if God has gone to the trouble of putting me and my family in your line of sight and you have rejected Jesus, it is God's plan to save you. I do not believe that we bought our house because it had a nice lot. I believe that God directed us to our house because on one side and the other, I have neighbors who need to know Jesus, and it's God's plan to save them through the ministry of our family. That's how you need to go through your world. You need to go through your world believing that God is placing you in the lives of people that he intends to save. I've talked about my admiration for the first American missionary, Adoniram Judson, to the point, I'm sure, of your exhaustion. In fact, I'm sure that some people thought, well, when his son and daughter-in-law named his first grandson Judson after Adoniram Judson, that would, that would put all of that to rest. If anything, it's gotten me more fired up. But I have not mentioned, like I should, the extraordinary witness of Adoniram Judson's first wife, Anne, also known as Nancy, who, who died of sickness on the mission field. Her love for Jesus was immense, and her belief that God chose whom he willed and hardened whom he willed was deeply ingrained in her early 1800s New England Christianity. And yet, she wrote this in her journal just a few years before meeting Adoniram and leaving for the mission field. Here's what she wrote as a teenager. When I get near to God and discern the excellence of the character of the Lord Jesus, and especially his power and willingness to save, I feel desirous that the whole world should become acquainted with this Savior. What you will not find in her journal is her wrestling with how God can be sovereign and mankind can have a free will. But what you do find her saying over and over again is that she wanted to be used to bring people to Jesus. So to close, my prayer today is that we will continue to faithfully share our faith because God is actively saving people in our world. He's actively saving people in your world. And maybe there are some upon whom you have given up. Hear this. Against all odds, people still believe because God still saves. Don't give up. Do not give up.